Welcome to special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. About the coronation of Charles III. Something that many, many people around the world are going to want to tune into. I live in Perth, Australia. We're obviously putting on a dinner uh, for the King's coronation, which is going to be a very much a regal event. Bulvanaka from the Fiji Islands. Even though we haven't been a British colony for decades, there's still, you know, that curiosity, almost a reverence for the royal family. Oh, King Charles is not my king. <laughs> King Charles is not my king. <laughs> and I'm from Ghana. I wish Charles all the best for the coronation, but as a Welsh person, it's hard to get super excited about it. A thousand years of history and all that. I'm in the Falkland Islands. Yeah, I'm going to be travelling to, to London to actually attend the coronation in person. And I have to almost immediately go shopping for a hat because I don't have one. <laughs> Here on Dynasty, we analyse the interplay of power and personality within this increasingly fractious family. Especially now with so much on the line for the future of the British monarchy and the UK's place in the world. Well, I'm Katie Nicholl, Vanity Fair's royal correspondent. I'm Erin Vanderhoof, staff writer at Vanity Fair, where I cover culture, books, music, and the British royal family. For the next few weeks, we'll be bringing you new episodes in the run-up to, and just after, the 6th of May coronation of King Charles III. Katie, to get started, maybe we should back up a little and start with the legacy of Queen Elizabeth, the UK's longest reigning monarch. What does this mean for Charles? Well, Erin, I think actually longevity is something that Charles shares with his mother. He was the longest serving Prince of Wales, 64 years and 44 days to be precise. And given that there was never a job description for that role, he made it his own and he did a huge amount of very, very good work. And Erin, we've discussed lots of that in the previous episodes of this podcast series. And while Charles, unlike his mother isn't going to see a jubilee of his own. I mean, I don't think we're going to see a silver jubilee because that marks 25 years on the throne. Um, I don't think that means he's not going to be a king that makes an impact. Yes, because of his age, he turned 75 this year, he's going to be a transitional king. But I think he's proved in these early months of his reign that it doesn't mean that he can't be an effective monarch. And when you consider his major interventions with the environment, helping young people, those interventions that he made as Prince of Wales, I think you get a really good understanding of the kind of king he is and what he plans to do during his reign, however long that may be. So if we look back over the past few months since September, I would say that as king, he's been quite slow, but very deliberate in what he's done. And that sense of continuity was incredibly important to the monarchy. And Charles hasn't wanted to rock the boat. He hasn't wanted to make any drastic or major changes. At the same time, you know, he's always said that things were going to have to change when he was king. So how do you think he sees the difference between the Prince of Wales and being the king? Well, I think he's always had a fundamental understanding that when he became sovereign, when he became king, he would have to make some fundamental changes. He wasn't going to be as um, political as perhaps he might have been as Prince of Wales. Um, I remember interviewing John Bridcup for my book, The New Royals, and he interviewed Charles. He's interviewed him several times. He did a major interview for Charles um, uh, as he approached his 70th birthday. And he asked Charles directly if he recognised and truly understood the differences between being king and Prince of Wales. You can't be the same as the sovereign if you're the Prince of Wales or the heir. But the idea somehow that I'm going to go on exactly the same way if I have to succeed is complete 
nonsense because the two the two situations are completely different. Clearly, I I won't be able to do the same things I've done, you know, as heir. So, of course, you operate within the the constitutional parameters. Like, the idea that I'm getting from him there is he's saying, like, I know more about that difference than anybody else does, so don't worry, I will be fine. Yeah, I think when we reflect on the early months of his reign, we see very real evidence of that. But I think he's actually proved to be a man of his word. And if I'm going to think of a couple of examples, I suppose, off the top of my head... He didn't go to the COP27 convention. He's a huge environmentalist. I mean, that is what he wants his legacy to be, to preserve and protect the planet for future generations. So something like that climate convention, COP27, would have been an important thing for him to to be seen at and, and to be represented at. It's a convention that he attended as the Prince of Wales. But on the advice of his government back in November, he stepped back from going. I suppose the problem with King Charles III mingling with world leaders is that it runs the risk of making him appear political. And as monarch, that is a big no-no. Now, earlier this year in February, he had been due to meet European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, just as highly contentious negotiations over the Northern Ireland Protocol were poised to come to a head. Now, some observers think Charles overstepped his role and became the centre of what was deemed in, in the papers as a sort of Brexit political storm. I mean, Erin, I know this story made waves across the Atlantic as well, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was such a fascinating story from the perspective of, you know, an American political observer because it it gets to the tension at the really core of having a head of state that is supposed to be so isolated from politics is because, you know, Britain's relationship with the EU, for example, is is inherently political after the Brexit referendum and has always been a matter of political controversy. And Charles kind of found himself in the position of, you know, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was negotiating with von der Leyen, but Charles had sort of like a more social visit before the Northern Ireland Protocol was totally set up. He received a lot of criticism in some newspapers, but it was political observers, you know, pointing out that there is inherently this political tint to some of the things that he does. But at the same time, people close to von der Leyen had point out, pointed out that she just was, you know, a personal fan of Charles and his work and wanted to meet him. So I think the a great example of exactly how Charles is navigating that arena is his recent trip to Germany. Uh, and it seemed like it was really a success, at least from, you know, our perspective over here. Why do you think that that worked so well? Well, it was his first overseas visit as king. Now, of course, all eyes were on Germany and it went very, very well from start to finish. The king was welcomed with military honours. I mean, that was a first. His speech to the Bundestag, that was a first and it was incredibly well received. And I think most people were very surprised to hear the king speaking in fluent German. I don't think most people knew that he he had such good German. And I think that delivery was very, very powerful. Gemeinsam müssen wir unseren Menschen das Leben in Sicherheit und Wohlstand ermöglichen, das die verdienen. The speech that he gave was deemed slightly political because what he did in that speech was he praised both London and Berlin for providing aid to Ukraine. Now, Germany has been on the receiving end of, of some criticism and some pressure from other Western countries for not doing enough to help Ukraine. So what did Charles do? He exercised diplomacy and he was the pacifier. He, he didn't criticise his host nation for not doing enough. What he did 
was forge a real connection between Britain and Germany and to praise both Britain and Germany for what they'd done to help Ukraine. And so that will all help cement post-Brexit relations um, and, and help to foster a special relationship between Britain and Germany. It's been a crazy year for the British political system, but it hasn't really reflected on Charles in any way because I think that he has gone into it very strongly thinking about it from the perspective of, like, what is my constitutional duty? How am I going to represent stability even when the people around me are not seeming especially stable? And I th- I think that that has, that has been his biggest success over the last year, even if, you know, <laughs> we'll talk about this later, but even if the family dynamics, I do think, have done a little bit to undermine the idea that, you know, there's there's a sense of, like, planning and stability going on. Mm. Well, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right, Erin. I mean, Charles hasn't even been king for a year, and yet he's had two prime ministers. That very unstable, uncertain political landscape has played totally to his advantage. Because what can we be assured of within the within the monarchy and the king? Security, continuity, and keep calm and carry on, whatever <laughs> the political climate. Mm-hmm. Dynasty will be right back in just a moment to discuss Charles's handling of his family. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. In the first season of Dynasty, we talked a lot about the idea... Uh, often attributed to King George VI, Queen Elizabeth II's father, that he and the rest of the royals were not just a family, they're a firm. And I think that we've seen a lot of examples of the way that the firm has functioned and the way that the family has functioned, the way those things are different. And how do you think that Charles has kind of taken on that role of being both the leader of the firm and the patriarch of a family? There were always going to be changes with the succession, with the with the reign change. And, and we've seen that at the royal households, the, the sort of um, the job cuts, the redundancies that had to take place as, as members of the Queen's household sort of folded into Charles's household, roles changed at Clarence House. The, the whole sort of mechanism around the, the palaces had changed. We've seen the sort of shuffling of royal palaces and residences and all the things that we might expect. I think for me, certainly the most interesting thing was how is Charles going to deal with the family and the dynamics of the family at points which have been pretty troublesome and pretty tricky for him. Charles has made a point of trying to sort out these family issues and tensions early on with the deliberate intention of them not overshadowing the future of his reign. Because if they do overshadow his reign, that could be potentially damaging. And that idea of the slim-down monarchy, something that, Erin, we've discussed in those early issues of Dynasty, it was it was very much on Charles's agenda that he wanted a pared-down royal family, one that was more efficient to the British taxpayer. But actually, because of the circumstances, i.e. being several members of the firm down, Prince Andrew is no longer a working member of the royal family and neither of the Sussexes, um, the, more, the monarchy has been more slimmed-down than perhaps Charles might imagined it to be. And so he's He's redressed things. Um, he's bestowed a, a, a shiny new title, Duke of Edinburgh, on his youngest brother, Prince Edward. He treats them as key members within the royal family. They are 
his substitutes in the same way that they were the Queen's substitutes. So I think we've seen Charles adapt with the shifting royal landscape. But there have been certain things that he's not prepared to budge on, and Prince Andrew is one of them. He won't be returning to the royal fold in any formal capacity, so don't expect to see him up on the Buckingham Palace balcony for the coronation, because that is reserved for working family members only. But while he's been sort of banished from royal life, he hasn't been banished from the family. We've seen him at some key events. We saw him just a few weeks ago at the Easter Day service. But don't mistake this for a comeback for Prince Andrew. The reality is Andrew faces losing his home in Windsor, and there's certainly not going to be an official royal role for him under the reign of Charles III. And of course, we've got Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. It's difficult when families break down like this, but you've got to say, Harry and his, particularly his wife, they brought it on themselves. And um... It's an arduous process, but again, it's just me standing up for what's right, which I think is important across the, bo- across the board, be it in this case or in the other things we've been talking about today. At a certain point, no matter how difficult it is, if you know the difference between right and wrong, you must stand up for what's right, and that's what I'm doing. I love my father, I love my brother, I love my family, I will always do. Nothing of what I've done in this book or otherwise has ever been uh, any intention to harm them or hurt them. I am really curious to hear your thoughts about, you know, what we've seen over the last six months and what it says about their roles as family members now. How have we kind of seen them be embraced? How have we not? What is your read on that? Well, I don't know if we've seen them embraced. Um, I think embrace is too is too friendly a word for the for the relations which you know are strained. There's there's no secret in that. I mean, I'm I'm told that the reports that Harry has been in touch with his father are accurate. I think there is there is a relationship that is trying to recover from a very very difficult period. Um, those conversations are taking place behind closed doors, but things are still tense. Um, you know, there's been a massive breakdown in trust here, and there's certainly no relationship between Harry and his brother. But again, I think we see Charles leading by example. We see the Charles that asked William and Harry to go and do that walkabout together in Windsor after the Queen's death. We're seeing that same pacifier, diplomatic Charles here. I mean, he didn't have to extend an invitation to the Sussexes to the coronation. Now, Erin, you and I have discussed this on many times, and I've always said, for me, the idea that Harry wouldn't be at his father's coronation is just inconceivable. There would it, it would overshadow events. So it's absolutely right that Harry is there, and I'm not surprised at all that Meghan has made the decision to stay at home. But I think it shows a degree of... Um, diplomacy and wanting to put this rift aside. And I, I think some people will see it as, as pretty magnanimous, actually, of Charles for it, for making sure that Harry is part of the day. Now, as far as Charles is concerned, Harry is invited for the whole of the coronation weekend. A place will be set for him at the post-coronation lunch. Now, whether Harry chooses to attend or not, we understand this is going to be a fleeting visit, but the offer has been there. That door that was always left ajar for them by the Queen has been left ajar for both Harry and Meghan by Charles as well, despite the criticism and the attacks that Charles received over the many pages of of Harry's book Spare. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that the way that in public, the idea that now Archie and Lilibet are a prince and princess, I think it kind of came off a little strange, but there have been reports that this is a thing that, you know, Meghan Meghan and Harry had discussed with the palace, you know, well in advance of all of that happening. The palace changed it on the website afterwards, that kind of tacit approval, and that there is like an olive branch being extended to them. You're right. I think that that 
that's one of the best signs we're going to see of like the door being ajar for them, especially for the grandkids, because it is kind of unreasonable to expect, you know, uh, what Archie will be will be for that day. And Lilibet is almost two. I think I can understand why, you know, even even just like logistically, I can understand why you wouldn't want to travel with kids that age. Exactly. Well, they did, they did it before for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations, and they were pretty low profile at that. Um, you know, they didn't turn up at the at the concert. They were there at the first service of Thanksgiving um, and on the first day of, of events, and that was it. After that, they, you know, they skipped out of town before the Platinum Jubilee celebrations had come to a close. And so I don't think we're going to see Harry hanging around. Understandably, as a parent, he's going to want to be there for his son's birthday. I think any parent totally understands that. But, uh, but I think it's also hugely important that he's at the coronation, that he takes his place in the Abbey because it is the most important day of his father's life. I'd love to pick up actually on what you were saying about titles, Erin, mm-hmm. because it was all handled in a very strange way. And 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 certainly my interpretation of it was this is once again Harry and Meghan sort of forcing the palace into a corner, jumping the gun by issuing the statement about Lilibet's christening and using the title princess when it hadn't actually been announced on the website. We'll be talking about this a lot, a lot more next week, but there's that central tension that we've you've we've always been talking about with this family, which is that they are a public-facing family that also struggles to communicate in private. The way that that then reaches us again is always unexpected, you know? It's always unexpected and it always seems to make headlines. Yeah. <laughs> what has the early months of, of Charles's reign brought for the new prince and princess of Wales and their children? How have you seen William and Catherine kind of stepping into those roles? Well, they've they've stepped up as they always do. I mean, remember when the Queen died, they'd only just taken their children, Louis's first day at school, Charlotte and, and George's first day at a new school. They'd moved that summer from Kensington Palace to um to Windsor Home Park. So their lives were going in a very different direction. And when suddenly they were thrown into complete chaos and, and turned upside down, really, by the death of the Queen. And while they always knew this this moment was coming, and I think that move to Windsor was in part to prepare for that, to give them the privacy they so desperately wanted as a family, knowing that their lives on the public stage was suddenly going to be accelerated and taken to a whole new level. Of course, they they wouldn't have known that it was going to happen as as, as quickly as it did, and so they've had to they've had to adjust under pretty pretty difficult circumstances, and I think they've done that by keeping themselves grounded, keeping up a, a routine for the children. Um, and I suppose introducing particularly George and Charlotte to the roles that that are one day going to be public roles in future, bringing them out more on the public stage. Of course, we saw them taking on official roles at the Queen's funeral, being part of that procession. We're going to see them take on official roles at the coronation. Um, and so, you know, as they approach their 10th and their 8th birthdays, um, they are also getting used to to what the future holds for them. But I think they continue to do a very good juggling act of, of having a, a normal, ordinary, or as normal and ordinary as it can be, family life, while also embracing these these public roles as Prince and Princess of Wales with a you know with a future king and you know the heir and the spare, which is George and Charlotte's dynamic. They are still very, very popular and people are behind them. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing any dramatic shift now that they're Prince and Princess of Wales. Yes, these are huge titles to be inheriting. Kate is incredibly aware of that that 
historical weight of that title, but I think her great success is making that her own and we're seeing her do just that. And actually, we're seeing William make that role of Prince of Wales his own too. I mean, look back at that trip to Poland just a few weeks ago. When you look at that tour, it felt very unlike any other sort of royal visit. It was kept completely secret until it was announced to the press. You know, the fact that William decided to go to Poland, he wanted to go to thank British and Polish troops who were involved in providing support to the Ukraine. Well, that felt very legitimate, but it also felt very personal. I mean, here is a future king who's going to be head of the armed forces, who served in the armed forces himself. And he had requested it because he personally wanted to go and thank the troops, but he didn't want to make a big deal of it until he got there. So I think, you know, that trip showed how we're seeing William as Prince of Wales do things with his own twist, in his own way. And when asked about the role of Prince of Wales many years ago, William said it was a role that he wanted to make his own, that he is his own man and he wants to do his own thing as Prince of Wales. And I think we're very much seeing the evidence of that. Uh, but you're doing a really important job out here and defending our freedoms is really important and everyone back home thoroughly supports you and everything you're doing with the, the Poles and our Polish counterparts in, uh, in providing that uh, safety is really important. So... Thank you for your time. Lovely to meet you all and um, good luck. Erin, I know you've spent a lot of time looking into how the British public feel about King Charles III. Now, as an observer, I think it's all been pretty positive and relatively smooth sailing so far. But what have the surveys revealed about changing attitudes towards our new king? So YouGov, the uh, you know data analytics company, they do a very extensive job of you know surveying a representative sample of the British public, and they ask them to kind of rank their favorites, and they ask about various popularity, you know, various questions that help gauge their popularity. And with Charles, one of the things that is not surprising, we predicted that it was maybe going to happen back around the time of the funeral, is that he immediately upon accessing to the throne got. A pretty pretty sizable bump in his popularity in terms of his numbers. He went from being, you know, a little bit kind of down the bottom of the list up to being about fifth in terms of, like, favorability of the entire family. And then in the months that have happened, we've kind of seen a reversion to the mean so that he's not as—he's not where he was, you know, back last spring— but he is now still about 63% was like the most recent. And I think more revealing is another survey that I saw that YouGov did, which is that only about a third of the British public is really excited or they really care about the forthcoming coronation. And about 35% said not very much and 29% said not at all. So it's a it's a real range of opinion in terms of how monumental an occasion this is sort of in the everyday life of, of British people. We did predict that, didn't we, that after the Queen died, there would be a a surge of support for Charles. I think an interest. People wanted to see what he was going to do. But I think what we've seen is um, a growing number of people thinking that actually he is going to do a good job as king. And I'm just looking at an Ipsos poll here saying six in 10 Britons now say that King Charles is going to do a good job as king. Now, back in March 2022, just 48% of Britons felt that he'd do a good job. Of course, that's Mm -hmm. when the Queen was still alive. Post her death, that number went up to 61%. Anyone that works for the royal family will tell you they pay no attention to those polls at all. (laughs) But actually, popularity, popularity and relevance and connecting with the public, with your subjects, is absolutely fundamental. And they can't just count on that. They have to connect with their public. They have to be meaningful to 
every every different generation within the public spectrum and and that's a challenge but i think when you look at the causes that the king and and the queen have aligned themselves with particularly some of the charities that camilla works with i'm thinking domestic violence i'm thinking literacy i'm i'm thinking charles's work with young people to really help give them a step up on the ladder i mean those are causes that most people agree are really good causes they want to get behind and having people that have the the influence and the global spotlight that the king and queen have using that in that way is something to be admired and it's something to be supported. And I think we're seeing that Mm -hmm. reflected in the polls. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. So, Katie... How do you think this coronation is going to be the same and how is it going to be different from his mother's back in 1953? Well, I think the point to make and everything that's been communicated to me by the palace is that you're going to have all the pomp and all the pageantry that you would want and expect of something as important as the coronation. So you're going to see um, exactly what you saw with Queen Elizabeth being anointed as queen, but there will be differences. It's going to be a smaller ceremony. So we know that where there were 8,000 guests invited to the Queen's coronation, you're going to have 2,000 at Charles's. It's not going to be as long a service as the Queen's coronation. Charles's coronation service is going to be just 60 minutes long. Now, we know that Charles is going to swear to be defender of the faith, but it's very important to him that representatives from many faiths are part of his coronation service. And we've just been told that there's going to be Greek Orthodox music played at the service in tribute to Prince Philip. Now, all in keeping with the king's mindfulness of Britain's ailing economy, the cost of living crisis, the fact that most people are really struggling right now, the cost of the coronation is going to be significantly less than the £1.5 million it cost to stage the Queen's coronation. And that means a smaller procession. It means things being done on a smaller scale. And of course, Erin, they're keen not to upset anyone. My personal favorite example of this so far is that instead of the traditional, occasionally it was whale or civet oil that was used for anointing in the past, this oil is cruelty-free. They have gotten it from, you know, like a, a slow olive oil farm, you know, is hand-pressed, and then it's been, you know, blessed in Israel, and now will be back to be used for the the ceremony. There was a bit of a challenge, it seems, um, finding musical performers, and I think that a lot of the acts that they would have chosen, like, say, Louis Cabaldi or a a bunch of different British high-profile performers, have actually had had U.S. tours planned for right now for, like, more than a year. So it's, you know, I think it was a little touch and go. But in the end, they got two people who are big names, beloved both in the U.S. and the U.K., who are associated with Charles's charities. They've got um, Katy Perry, who has been an ambassador for the British Asia Trust, and Lionel Richie, also a longtime friend of Charles, who are going to perform. And I feel like that, you know, along with the 
the the Platinum Jubilee party at the palace, I think that there was this kind of this great moment of like, you don't have to have the biggest acts in the world to still put on a, a really great show. And I think that that's it's going to be it's going to be fun. And I think it's going to be really representative of Charles because it's people that he knows. Well, I think, frankly, Erin, with Lionel Richie, you can't go wrong. And I don't know about you, but I've been lucky enough to enjoy several parties at the Palace over my years as a royal correspondent, but I've not yet done one at Windsor Castle. So that is going to be a first. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I never I never thought about that. But yeah, that, that is not the, the most common place to have a Palace party, no. but it'll be a fun one. Uh, so we've talked a lot about We've talked a lot about the things that Charles has already done pretty impressively over the last nine months. But, you know, let's widen our scope a little bit. Over the next few years, what are what are his aims going to be and what are some of the challenges that you anticipate? Well, I think it goes back to your point about the polls and popularity is absolutely crucial. Connecting with the people of Britain and around the Commonwealth Again, absolutely crucial to the longevity of the monarchy. And and Charles's job, quite simply, is to safeguard the future of the monarchy, to continue his mother's legacy, but to put his own stamp on it as King Charles III. We know that he's streamlining the monarchy. We know that he wants it to be less of a burden on members of the public, but he passionately believes in the institution of the monarchy. He wants it to continue. As far as challenges concerned, they are multiple. There are all the difficult family dynamics that still need to be resolved. There's the issue of the United Kingdom. I mean, I I have been told by very reliable sources that what has always worried Charles is keeping the United Kingdom intact. You know, he would hate to see Scotland break away from the United Kingdom. So that's a major challenge for him, as is the Commonwealth and the future of the Commonwealth. Um, This was his mother's legacy. This was something that she was incredibly proud of, this, this rainbow family of nations. Can it survive? Can it continue? Will it continue to flourish under King Charles? These are all big challenges, big obstacles. And so while I think the early months of his reign have been, as I say, pretty smooth sailing, I think it's going to be after the coronation that those challenges and those obstacles really do come up. And what's going to be so telling is how Charles deals with them. Erin, I'm curious to know what you think are his are his real aims and challenges over the coming months and years. So, you know, you mentioned the cost of living crisis earlier. And one of the things that I think I've come to appreciate in in learning about this and reading it, thinking about the the deep roots of some of the of some of the issues that have come up in the British economy recently, is that it's not only, you know, one problem. I think it's a lot of different problems coming together. And at its core is really a lot of young people don't always feel like they have a reason to be optimistic about living in Britain. They don't always see futures where they're able to purchase houses. And, you know, I think that one of the biggest challenges that Charles is going to face is just that at the end of the day, you know, whether or not the monarchy continues to be seen as a part of what makes Britain distinctive and what makes it, you know, what makes it a unique place where people are happy to live, so much of that is going to come down to things that aren't really in his control. I think figuring out a way to work with that productively is going to be something that, in the same way that the Queen kind of came to symbolize what it meant for Britain to be figuring out who it was after the empire, I think Charles is going to be coming, is going to be the symbol of what it means for Britain to figure out what it means to be British, what it means to be a part of this broader 
global change that climate change is being on, that transition is going to be what he comes to represent. But one of the things that I think you pointed out to me really early on, immediately after um, the Queen's death, that has really stuck with me is just that he put a lot of effort in at the very beginning to seeming to to showing his emotional response to the fact that he had lost his mother, to the fact that he was becoming something new to the public. And I think that 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 emotional honesty is the way he's going to navigate that. He's a very emotional man. He's a he is a king who is known to sometimes shed a tear at the opera. And I, I think his emotional connection is going to serve him incredibly well with people. I saw that connection the day after the Queen died when Charles and Camilla returned from Scotland to England. I remember standing outside Buckingham Palace with thousands of people who had gathered to see their new king. You could hear a pin drop. And when he stepped out the car, no one knew what the response was going to be, but it was one of applause. It was one where cries of God save the king rang out across the Mall. It was a spine-tingling moment, and I could see in the king's face how much that support meant to him. Whether that support will continue after his coronation, we've yet to see. But Erin, I have loved discussing this with you, and I can't wait to dig into the coronation and everything that the next few weeks are going to bring. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be a spectacle. And I couldn't think of anyone I'd rather be dissecting it all with than you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Katie. So we have more episodes planned about everything related to the coronation. We'll cover the firm's relationship with the media analyze the coronation coverage, and speculate a little bit about those family dynamics once Charles is crowned. Be sure to stay tuned. This has been special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. Dynasty is produced by Vanity Fair and Condé Nast Entertainment. This episode was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Bob Mallory and Kevin Barassa. The theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are our staff editorial consultants. Some of the voices you heard at the beginning of this episode included Tony Goodman, Claire Bruton, Teslin Barkman and Amelia Rigsby. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Dynasty on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com slash dynasty and you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. Thanks so much for listening and may I just say, long live the king. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. 
The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.